Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is Ralph Rugoff, director of the Hayward Gallery and curator of the 2019 Venice Biennale. Originally from New York, he began his art career during the 80s in Los Angeles, writing for various newspapers and periodicals, before becoming director of the CCA Waters Institute for Contemporary Arts in San Francisco. He has been at the Hayward since 2006, overseeing its 2018 relaunch and making an impression with his exploration of contemporary themes of gender identity and fake news. As well as discussing the things he'd put in the cabinet at 5 Carlos Place, he spoke to me about his upcoming Venice exhibition, a quirky artwork like no other he visited in Mexico, and playing basketball with Bob Dylan. Hello, Ralph Rugoff. Hello. Welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we're sitting here in your offices at the Hayward Gallery, where you're where you are director. Yes, I've been director here now for a frighteningly long time. Since 2006? That's right. Yeah. Do you feel the weight of the previous directors here or when you're, when you're working here? No, I really feel the weight of the building because yeah. our <laughs> offices are in the basement. Yeah. So we've got this concrete monolith above us, but um, it's a nice weight. I'm surprised that this office is so small. I probably have the worst office of any um, kind of major gallery director in the world, but um, it's, you know, I, I'm very lucky to uh, be working in an incredible building. So I. Do you spend a lot of time in here, though, or are you out and about? And I'm out and about a lot, yeah. and luckily we have a very nice cafe upstairs where I spend a lot of time, and I'm in the gallery a lot, actually. Mm. So, mm. Um, you know, when I'm in here, I'm at a computer, so it kind of doesn't matter that much. You don't need you a window. Yeah. You do need some more bookshelves, though. I do need more bookshelves. Yeah. So that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this podcast um, has a theme, which is to talk about five objects or um, abstract things that have inspired you or given your life meaning in some way. Um, was there something you wanted to start with? Well, you know, I, I was thinking more along very abstract things, but, you know, they might not fit into this collection. One of them was just the school I went to when I was really little, where um, they had a philosophy that no one had to learn unless you wanted to. So I was the last kid in the class who learned how to read. I was eight years old when I learned how to read, and that's when your parents start to worry if you've got a mental deficiency of some kind. Um, Where was this school? This school was in Greenwich Village in New York. And, uh, you know, I just wasn't interested in reading. I was interested in other things. and But I eventually became someone who loves books, love reading. Books are still one of the things that inspire me most in, in life. Reading is one of the great pleasures for me in life. But what I think I learned from this school was just not to worry um, that things happen in their own time. 
And so when my son was growing up and he wasn't following whatever schedule people were supposed to be on, uh, I never was concerned. You know, I, I just figured, you know, things would work out in the end and they did. So um, I think that experience was very, very important. And actually, as I'm doing this Venice Biennale right now and you're working with, you know, 83 different artists, this very complicated organization in Venice, my own assistants live in three different cities. Um, artists are coming up with incredibly complex projects, each of them demands more and more of your attention. Everybody wants 400 square meters of space and they, they can't have it. Um, and, you know, you're trying to also raise money for this. You're having to go on this kind of crazy international press tour. But um, I'm not too worried about how it's going to work out. I just feel we're going to eventually get there and whatever we end up with, it'll be good. Hmm. So this is... So this, the, this experiment, this experimental school worked out well for you? I think it did. What's it, yeah. What was it called or is it still there? It's still around. It's actually, um, it's called the Little Red Schoolhouse. And funny enough, we have a Dean Arbus show right now in the Hayward Gallery and her daughter came over for the opening and her sister had gone to this school. Um, so uh, I don't know what it's like now. It was just the closest school to where I lived and I think that's how I ended up there hmm. um, did you, so you did and you treated your son the same way he learned to read when he well, wanted as well no you know he didn't go to that kind of school right. so he 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 ended up having to read but if he was slow in <laughs> some other read. area I wasn't particularly concerned you know um, you know there was a period where he wasn't getting good reports and it just I wasn't really worried about it um, you seem quite a laid-back person in general. Is that was that correct? Would you say? You know, it's, I'm a mix. Yeah. I mean, I think I can be a control freak, and I'm very detail oriented. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't have to get emotional about it. I mean, you know, you can put things in perspective. Mm. Um, but yeah, I care a great deal about what I do. So you do end up. I don't, I'm not relaxed in that respect of just, oh, yeah, that's fine. Mm. Um, you know, you have to keep doing it until you get it right. But if things are not nailed down and advanced, I'm not that bothered by it. When did you first become interested in art? Well, it really depends what you mean by art. Visual art. I mean, I loved music when I was a kid and, you know, started buying in those days, you were buying 45 records, uh, you know, when I was around seven years old. And where I grew up, there were a lot of music clubs. Um, Bob Dylan ended up moving on the street, next street over, and we played basketball when I was eight. You saw Bob Dylan? <laughs> yeah, I scored points against Bob Dylan. Um, he, how does he play? <laughs> he was okay. He was yeah. a pretty good jump shot. <laughs> um, what were your parents doing? Were they interested? Were they encouraging you in these endeavors um well they they were pretty open-ended minded um and they were also involved in a kind of progressive politics so they were going to marches on washington in the 60s and i think later in, in when i was at 12 and 13 uh i think going to a lot of the anti-war protests at that time was also an experience that meant a lot to me 
where uh, you just saw that there were thousands of people gathering in, in Central Park and there was that sense of solidarity you get from huge crowds who all share some conviction and there was also something kind of like a festival about it. Uh, it's a funny thing about um, the good feeling that emerges when you get a lot of people together for something. But also everyone was either taking a day off work or skipping school as I was. Uh, so there was that sense of it's not a normal day. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you feel a similar vibe with all the marches that are happening now or does it have a different Well, I'm incredibly it? thrilled to see mm. yeah, grade school children having marches and strikes about climate change because uh, it seems the rest of the world is pretending climate change doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, even university students could be, you'd think they'd be a little more freaked out, but the idea that it's grade school, you know, secondary school students, and yeah. that's really fantastic. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really the sign of a healthy democracy. And, um, you know, in the, when I was growing up, when I was a kid in the 60s, you saw that it was a lot easier to impact the political process through demonstrations. I don't think politicians were quite as controlled by other interests, perhaps, as they are today. Uh, so, the, yeah, there was more feeling that it could make a difference. Um, and there wasn't the Internet. And there wasn't the internet. Yeah, there wasn't social media. Mm. Uh, so yeah, communication happened in a similar way, though. It just wasn't electronic. Mm. But I mean, I think it happens through a network, you know, and it spreads out like a spider web. Mm. What's the second thing you want to talk about? Well, I'd say um, it's probably an artwork that was in the very first exhibition I curated. And uh, this was in Los Angeles in 1990. There was an amazing artist who lived in Los Angeles then, who's no longer alive, sadly, named Mike Kelly, who I think was one of the great American artists of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And um, Mike, I'd, gave a, I'd given a talk at a local art school. I was working as an art writer in those days. And uh, Mike heard about this talk, uh, which was on what I was calling the pathetic, just the realm of pathetic experiences in life. And he said, Ralph, this is amazing. You have to do an exhibition. I'd never curated anything. I was mainly a critic. I said, okay, that sounds interesting. Um, and so he set it up so I could do it at the gallery that represented him. And it was an exhibition called Just Pathetic. And it was really about how um, uh, an exhibition looking at failure in a way and about our responses to failure and also about some of the uneasiness that failure or, or the image of failure creates in people. You feel embarrassed. Um, or sometimes you laugh at something that's might be tragic. I mean, why do we laugh when someone slips on a banana peel? A classic slapstick thing, right? What's so funny about somebody falling on the ground and hurting themselves? <laughs> well, that's part of human nature. So this was a show exploring these kinds of contradictions. And Mike made a couple of works just for the show. And uh, two of them, they were called Ouija and Mooner, uh, were works based around 
um, the fact that his girlfriend's two cats had recently died. And so on the ground were these little cat blankets that had been belonged to these cats. There were playthings, uh, feeding dishes, and a pile of unopened food that they would now never eat. <laughs> and the, the kind of killing touch was there were form letters from two veterinarians for each cat written to his girlfriend, expressing in the most generic Hallmark card fashion imaginable their, uh, you know, consolations for her great loss of a cat. Um, and these were laid out on the floor of a gallery as objects for sale, which was very interesting. Who could possibly buy <laughs> these belongings of a dead cat? Um, and cat Bereavement, I mean, pet bereavement in general is a really strange psychological area. People, it turns out, are often more attached to their pets than they are to the human beings in their lives. And, you know, I think in the UK, there's something like over 120 million pets. Um, and when the, your pet dies, who's been your constant companion for 14 years or something, who's seen you when no one else has seen you, who knows You've shared all your private moments with this pet. They've always been there. They never objected to getting a yeah. scratch on the head, etc. When they die, you really feel like you've lost something. And yet, we don't acknowledge that as a society. You can't call up your boss and say, I'm taking the week off, my cat died. Um, so there was a lot of interesting psychological material around this. But I thought it was so extreme as a work of art. Um, it was such a challenge to take it seriously. It was pathetic and laughable at the same time. I mean, it's like pathos filled, but then also something unnervingly weird and funny about it. And that walking that line, um, you know, the art wasn't in the way these objects were made or how they were laid out. It was in the proposition of putting this forward as an art object and for something you had to confront and think about. How were they received? Were they received how you expected or were you surprised? Uh, we had problems with people stepping on them because mm. they were on the, on the ground. Uh, and what was interesting was they ended up uh, in a museum collection. And the museum, a few years later, brought them out with a show of recent acquisitions big, shiny showroom kind of museum. And they didn't work at all for me anymore uh, because now they'd been enshrined as art with the official museum brand. But when they were in this gallery, which wasn't a particularly fancy gallery, and they were just lying on the floor and it was out there, as, it was really an open question. Is this a work of art? Mm. And that tension was lost in a way when it got into the museum collection. So that history also was really something that I've thought about a lot mm. and in a way has inspired some of the ways I think about art and how to present it. The context is a huge part of it all. Art objects are very sensitive to their surroundings. You know, it's maybe if we watch a movie on our phone, it feels different from watching it on a computer or watching on a big screen TV, but the story is pretty much the same. But uh, I think actually there are cases where seeing a movie in a cinema is a really totally different experience. And there's some movies that just wouldn't translate to a small screen. And maybe that's comparable to the fact that an art 
work can look and feel totally different in a different venue. Mm. I often see the same show at different museums, shows that travel, and in my own travels, I'll run across it again. And I've had this really uncanny experience where you go in and you see a show by an artist who you like, and you think, God, this is a terrible show. Maybe I've really made a mistake, and this artist isn't as good as I thought they were. And six months later, you see the same show at a different museum somewhere else, and actually, it looks great. And you go, oh, phew, that actually <laughs> is a really good artist. So it's a strange little thing in the yeah. art world. People don't really think about it much. But you're, 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 you're interested in how um, viewers interact with the artwork as well and how they move around a space. And I know you said in the past that you try and uh, make it not about walking straight to a wall and reading the description of the artwork. Um, so I suppose that feeds into that idea as well for you. You know, it's got to be a live experience, a live encounter somehow. And that's why, for me, it's been a great uh, stroke of luck to be working in the Hayward Gallery, which is a really unusual architectural space. And artists like to use it in different ways, and we always like to invite them to kind of find a different way of uh, what's using it, what, a space. What's its unique selling point, for want of a better phrase? Well, you know, it's really, I think, that the galleries. There are five different galleries inside the building, and each one has a different character. They have different proportions. Sometimes there are different materials involved. Some of them have light coming in from the ceiling. Some don't. Some feel like a bunker. Um, and they're not white cubes. They're not, you know, and you have, because it's a concrete building, and there are elements that are cast, like these big stairways that feel like sculptures, you have a sense of, you know, the architecture doesn't disappear. It's very present. So as you walk around it, you have a sense of your body in a structure. And I think that automatically tunes you into using your body as a tool for mm. what you're looking at yeah. and being sensitive to how the space is used. And are you thinking of a particular t um, type of audience for the shows you're putting on here? I noticed that a lot of them are aimed at a younger audience. I don't well, know if you agree. I don't know if they're really aimed at a younger audience, but we do seem to get a younger audience. Um, maybe I'm losing touch with my generation. <laughs> but, um, because I, I'm not specific, I, I always hope we're aiming for I mean, I, potentially everyone. But, I suppose there are themes, just because of themes, like I've seen you have an upcoming exhibition about um, gender and sex. Um, Kiss My Genders, yes, yeah, our summer show. coming up, and um, I know you've, you know, the themes that you're dealing with feel very contemporary from fake news and so on, so. But um, tell us, well, I suppose, first of all, let's, what's, what's the third object you wanted to talk about? Um, a third object, <laughs> um, let's see. I'd say it's probably a place in Tijuana, is just over the border of the United States and Mexico. Uh, and it's a, it's a house called La Mona, which just means, what does La Mona mean? Is it the doll or the woman? Quick, I somebody I look up on your phone. <laughs> it might be the doll. It is a woman. And so in this ravine, and Tijuana is filled with these houses perched on the edge of these very sharp ravines, and the ravines at least at this time, were usually filled with garbage. It was a lot of poverty in Tijuana. Um, 
And this guy had built a house by himself in the shape of a giant woman who's holding up her arm in a kind of fisted salute, all made out of white plaster. And um, I was just driving around Tijuana one day and I saw it and I drove over to it and it turned out, um, I mean, that's actually a house. Yeah, we're looking at this we're picture now. We're looking at a picture of it, yeah. And, you know, wow. you see behind it all kinds of very precarious looking uh, improvised shacks and small houses in the hills. So this guy, just one day, decided he was going to do this. He was working as a dishwasher, taught himself, actually invented a technique of building, and... Um, built a house in the form of a body, and he was very logical about how he arranged the rooms inside. When was this? Mm, early 90s. So the kitchen was in the stomach, and that's where he ate. He had a little desk and study up in the head. That's where he did his thinking. The loo was actually in the bottom, the statue's bottom. Um, and there was a strange, kind of very odd, literal and you know idea of a body as a house and of course when you were in there the rooms were shaped like that part of the body so it wasn't like you were walking in a normal square room with straight walls wow. it's like you'd entered some giant person's intestines or brain and when you and you looked out the windows of the head you were looking through the eyes um and this guy who had made this was completely brilliant self-taught architect. He later went on and made a mermaid house down by the beach, uh, which on wow. the same principle. Are these places open to the public? You could kind of, you could get his number from his one of his neighbors, call him up, and then he would meet you there and you could go in. It, but it wasn't like somebody was there taking tickets. Um, but it was the kind of experience that, you know, it was like an art experience. It was a totally different kind of world. I loved the way it looked as a statue. But the fact that it was also a house made it feel really very different when you were in it. So it was like, um, I mean, I always imagined a street of houses built by the sky, just bodies <laughs> all next to each other, a row of people, and the people would then go inside their houses. And I must say, it was a very creative neighborhood. I saw an amazing stretch beetle um, a Volkswagen Beetle, right, that somebody had turned into a stretch limousine. And um, you just saw stuff like that where people had just re-taken things apart and put them back together again in interesting ways. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, what the French call bricolage, just fitting things together from odds and ends in Tijuana because people would use corrugated metal to make a house with old tires and sheets of corrugated metal. Um, and uh, yeah, at that time, I, I really thought of Tijuana as this magical uh, escape from Los Angeles. Not that Los Angeles was a terrible place or was without its own kind of charms. But I remember seeing on one of my trips to visit La Mona, there was a Brazilian stage hypnotist performing at a local theater. And the guy, Marcus, who made La Mona, said, Rap, you really should go. And I'd never been to see a stage hypnotist. And uh, this guy was incredible, this little guy with a long beard and a cane. 
And uh, he hypnotized about 20% of the people in the theater who got up on stage and started barking like dogs or crying, <laughs> trembling, or doing Madonna imitations. Did he uh, hypnotize you? I'm not very, uh, you know, I had was protected on two accounts. One, I'm not that susceptible to going into trance states. Some people are. I think about 5% of the population is very easy to hypnotize. But also he was speaking in Spanish, and I only knew about 200 <laughs> words in Spanish. So I was relatively protected. But one of the people who was hypnotized and who was singing a Madonna song came down off the stage and kissed me. So I felt intimately connected to the whole performance. <laughs> wow. Do you miss the States? Um, no, I really don't, to tell you the truth, especially now with the politics going on. Um, uh, I think things have changed. It's really interesting. I used to, I grew up in New York City and I used to go back to New York from the UK and feel like, wow, this is what freedom feels like. Because New York uh, used to be the kind of place where somebody might be walking down the street in a bathrobe, talking to themselves, but nobody looked at them twice. Yeah. You know, the, the street was everybody's living room, crazy things happened. Nobody, there was, the freedom was that anything was fine. Nobody cared in a way. Nobody was bothered if you were weird in some way. And so you always saw amazing stuff on the street happening and amazing conversations in a way that I felt, I felt, you know, London was still a little buttoned down at one point compared to that experience. But I think things have really changed. I think London has become very different, uh, maybe a little bit more like New York was in some ways, and New York has become less so. It's become more conservative. Uh, so yeah, I, um, I like being over here. I like, you know, a great thing about being here, of course, is the proximity to all these different countries in Europe, which now we don't know what's gonna happen with that. Well, yes. How yeah. does that affect, um, do you think your chances of being director of the Venice Biennale as you are for 2019 would have, do you think the, the vote, the Brexit vote would have affected your how, how, how that went? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm the first uh, curator from the UK to curate this thing in Venice. And I thought, oh, they must have chosen someone from the UK because of Brexit to make some kind of point. But the president of Biennale who chose me denies this. Um, so maybe it's just a really strange coincidence. Yeah. yeah. It does feel quite strange. Yeah. Um, so. Tell us a bit about... Now I'm just worried if I'm going to be able to get a plane to Venice yeah, exactly. on April 1st. You're not right? going to get through the passport yes. control, I know. Yeah. Um, so, the, so you're curating the exhibition this year, um, and it has... Tell us a bit about what the theme is and the strange title you chose for it. Well, the title, it's not that strange, really. It's called May You Live in Interesting Times. And the only strange thing about it is it has this odd history and that this phrase was supposedly an ancient Chinese curse. And everyone from uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton to Arthur C. Clarke and Albert Camus has written about this as a curse. Apparently, it, it, it turns out it was never an ancient Chinese curse. And a British diplomat in the early 20th century made this up a British politician used it in a speech. And um, ever since then, people keep referring to this ancient Chinese curse. But I think it's because this, 
it's quite an interesting idea of a curse. It's not like, you know, may your children rot in hell. It's doesn't feel that bad. May you live in interesting times. May you live in really boring times. Seems like it might be more of a curse for us now. But I, you know, so it makes you stop and think for a second. What is an interesting time? And I think the idea of this fake curse was that it would have been a time of revolution, war, disaster, famine. Interesting meaning not stable. Um, and I think we do live in interesting times. I mean, you know, we've had some really strange things happen. The Brexit vote, Trump getting elected, governments in Europe, elect, you know, becoming fascist. We've seen things that seem quite alarming where you might think the 1930s are coming back. Um, but I like the fact that as a title, it's not negative. It just kind of implicitly makes you think, hmm, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And um, the show is trying to reflect on these times. And one of the things that I th thought about the times we're living in is that we sort of live in this thanks to social media, this new universe of communication by Twitter. Um, messages get shorter and shorter, simpler and simpler. Thinking gets more reductive. And you have the phenomenon of news silos where you set up your social media news feed so you only get news that confirms what you already believe. And so you get extremist factions who only keep reading stuff that reinforces what they believe. And, you know, you could say that, well, conservative newspapers in a way always do the same thing. You Same with the liberal newspaper. Um, but I think there were still forums and maybe it was just when there only was one or two news channels and everyone had to listen to the same news. And now we live in a moment where people really, you know, live in universes of alternative facts, you know, to borrow a phrase from the Trump people. Um, so there's a split. And we see not just between societies, but within societies, these groups who cannot talk to each other. Uh, so to reflect that, I decided to split the Biennale into two parts, uh, two different propositions, but to have the same artists in both exhibitions, but showing completely different works because artists do different things. And one of the things I wanted to highlight was that, well, uh, our information may be getting parsed along narrower and narrower bandwidths in kind of pop culture. Art's great gift is that it deals with layers and levels and it's complex and ambiguous. It's not simple. Uh, I, and I don't think human experience is simple. So there'll be you'll see the same artists in two different shows showing totally different works. And if this works, and I won't find out until around six weeks from now, it'll feel like two totally different shows. And someone who's not paid attention and reading the wall labels will just assume there are shows by different artists. Um, and I hope that that's the beginning of a conversation uh, of some kind. I mean, because, you know, for me, it's not so important what the curator's theme is. It's more important what the theories are that your audience comes up with in response to the exhibition. The exhibition should just be a provocation to come up with a theory. Are you interested in how the audience responds to it in terms of what they're putting on social media themselves? 
I'm really interested, but in a more abstract way, and then I'm not following, say, social media feeds to get a sense of that. But I'm very grateful when people who do follow them tell me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's really, it's an exhibition without a theme, but with two propositions. Um, and there are, uh, for the first time, an equal number, or near as an equal number of female to male artists. There's actually more women artists. And uh, three non-binary artists. But that wasn't, I wanted to have it be close, mm. but I wasn't counting. And I'd actually miscounted. So I was kind of disappointed. I thought that I'd ended up with more male <laughs> artists. Um, but then the Biennale Press Office came out with a statement and I was pleasantly surprised. We'd, we'd actually made it to have more women artists. Uh, and they're great artists. And what, you know, what's always surprising is you choose these really kind of well-known, incredibly accomplished people. And then you find out actually they've never been in the Biennale before. And that's kind of nice because I tried to avoid, to some extent, people who've been in it. Uh, I mean, I've got some people who've been in it before, but I didn't want to have a lot of them. Hmm. What's the point yeah. of the Biennale, do you think? Well, you know, I mean, you know, in an ideal world, the point of a Biennale is it's this kind of forum where you can have a conversation with artists from all over the world about a particular thing. In this case, it's sort of just a more general reflection on different things that are happening in this moment, types of thinking that are defining this moment, ways of looking, but also real things, things in the real world. Uh, and that's kind of an unusual, I can't think of something in another art form that's similar that way. It's, you know, you have film festivals, but they're usually not about one thing where all the films are exploring this one arena. Um, and, you know, I think there's other sides to it, of course. I think the Biennale was developed originally in uh, the late 19th century to promote tourism. And a lot of cities, there are now like 300 Biennales all around the world. And I, I think a lot of cities hope that cultural tourism will somehow generate revenue and or change the profile of their city. Uh, so tourism is part of it. And I think one of the challenges for anyone making exhibitions today, but especially these big exhibitions that do attract tourists, is how do you deal with the way people, people's behavior has changed going to galleries because of social media. And, you know, you see a lot of people who go into galleries and they don't even look at anything. They just take pictures of it, walk into the next room, snap, 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 they leave. You know, I'm looking at them and I'm going, God, when do you experience the exhibition when you're going through these images on your Facebook page or something? But then you've lost the physical opportunity to do it. And even, you know, worse or, or is now people who just go to exhibitions and take selfies of themselves in front of the artworks. It's bad enough to do it in front of an object, but I talk to performance artists who talk about having people come right up to them as they're performing and taking pictures <laughs> in front of the performing person. Uh, so this whole weird culture has gotten slightly out of control. Uh, and it'd be great to have a ban on taking pictures, but nobody wants to do that anymore because these things drive audiences. Are you allowed to take pictures in the Hayward? 
it usually you are now it's funny you know yeah. 10 years ago you couldn't uh occasionally though we get artists who say no and say on the dn arbus show you cannot take pictures because the estate has said no uh and I suppose in a way you could say it becomes part of the artwork itself, people walking around taking, taking pictures. Yeah. Well, I, I really wanted to get some work that mm. could play with this behavior, mm. and I didn't think I quite came up with it. Um, I mean, there's some works that will defy that. There is a corridor, say, where the light is so bright that no <laughs> photograph will come out. <laughs> But I mean, I did think, gee, should we you know, show everything in really dark rooms if pictures won't come out? Or could you actually have someone hacking into everybody's phones and you end up with someone else's selfie and mm. just messing with it that way? But Can't nothing you just get rid of the signal or something? In the, well, you, yeah, the could you? But people could still take pictures on their phone yeah, and then course, send yeah. it later. That's the problem. Mm. You'd have to totally interfere with people's ability to use their phone. Interesting. We've got to come back to your objects. All right, another object. Let's see. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a photograph actually that's in our current exhibition by Cataratia. But this is in a book that we just published yesterday, a book of his photographs called The Landing Strip. And this amazing book that uh, brings together photographs he made over a two-year period in Paris at the beginning of the 2000s, when he befriended a community of about 500. Algerian illegal immigrants who were all transgender and many of them were sex workers and he helped them to get residency papers and he also became their house photographer when they were having parties or weddings he was the guy they called and he gradually put together an amazing uh, body of photographs which he basically kept in a shoebox for about the last 17 years and he made one slideshow from it as an artwork, and that was the only thing. And I was meeting with him in his office in Berlin, which is not unlike my office, a kind of a small room with too many books. And um, he took out his shoebox, and I was looking at these pictures, and I saw one picture of this transgender person in a bar uh, and a young guy in a bar looking at her, with this incredible, amazed, fixated look on his face. And she was kind of smiling. And it was such a powerful photo. I just said, we have to actually make a book out of these pictures. And he was really happy to do it. But there's one amazing picture here, um, which they don't have names. Um, but this shows a transgender person standing in front of uh, a police station in Paris. And, um, you know, it's someone with a very pretty face and um, she was applying to get her residency papers in Paris and she was denied that year. Um, but later, Kader tells an incredible story about her where she, a lot of these transgenders in this community, they didn't come from big cities in uh, Algeria. They came from the countryside, from small towns which were very intolerant of any kind of different, different behavior. And she, found a, she learned that her father was dying and she wanted to go back to see him before he died. But she knew if she went back like this, 
she'd probably be murdered. Uh, this was a time when Algeria was still in the midst of a civil war between a rebel Islamic group and a military government. Um, so she started taking male hormones, uh, her voice changed, started growing facial hair again. She had her breast implants removed. Uh, she then drove through Spain to Morocco to kind of enter the country so she wouldn't have to go through customs at the airport and be detained. And then she drove to her village and then was so terrified uh, at the fear that people would see she had changed her body in some way that she never got out of the car. She just stayed in the car for three days and then drove home and uh, went back to Paris, became a woman again. Um, but it was an incredible story to me of, you know, the difficulty and the precariousness of someone in that situation and also of the fluidity of identity that she literally became a man again to go mm. back and to see her father's funeral uh, but then came back and became a woman again and in terms of you know I think you know I think what's why so many people are interested in gender now um, especially for you know a younger generation it's completely it's another world from say the world I grew up in and there are very open-ended ideas about gender and I think it ultimately leads to a very different idea about what identity is and who you are and you know the idea that this is something that can be in flux and can change all the time uh, and I think that's what art teaches us, really. It teaches you to look at things uh, in ways that, where you appreciate the fact that things are in flux, things are dynamic. You know, they're changing. Where if you stand, you move to a different place, you get a different perspective, you have a different experience of something. On a different day, you might look at this picture and feel very differently. Because you see in a lot of these pictures in Kader's books, there are a lot of very happy moments. There are a lot of celebratory moments. But you also see faces where people uh, look quite sad. And a lot of them, they didn't want to be in France because they loved French culture. They were there because they couldn't live as a transgender in Algeria. So they were in exile and they had the desire to be home again. They were also in exile in their own body. Um, so there's a really a strong mix of emotions that comes through in these pictures in this book and I think to me that's what all interesting art does for you is you have to unravel some emotions that are tangled up in ways that you can't resolve so you never get to the bottom of it. What about art and technology how do you feel like um, do you th things like VR and experimenting with um, different types of new frontiers and technology. Is that something that you see is happening as being, do you think there are interesting things happening there or do you think it's all been more flash in the pan? You know, it's, it's funny. When I was a boy, I went to some exhibit in New York of holograms, holographic art. And I was fascinated by it. There were little people in, in glass jars playing the saxophone, dancing, you could walk around them. I thought, wow, this is the future. Of course, that future never came. I don't know if there's going to be a VR feature beyond gaming. Um, 
I mean, I've seen some interesting artworks in VR and, and Dominique Gonzalez-Foster is working on a very interesting one for the Biennale, but I don't know if it's going to be mass entertainment. It sounds like something that's really exploring the space of trance. And Dominique, who was here the other day, was saying actually she tried it out for the first time and she couldn't take off the headphones. She found it so addictive. So she may have discovered something, but it's not going to be a Did kind of... Did you say of, trance? Yeah, trance. So I mean, you, like going into an altered state. Right, a bit like the hypnotist on the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I had never thought of trance as being a type of space, but that's how Dominique was talking about it. Um, so I'm very curious. I'm very much looking forward to experiencing mm. this piece of hers. And another artist in the Biennale, and this is the first time I think there's been this kind of work, is doing an augmented reality piece. And this is a guy named Darren Bader from New York, which will be an alternative tour of Venice. So it's sort of Pokemon style with your telephone, but you're looking around and there are very strange things happening in different parts of Venice as you go through the city. Um, and that, I think is also gonna be pretty interesting. So yeah, I think things, there's definitely potential, but I don't know whether VR, I feel like there's some other technology lurking behind VR that maybe we'll discover and, four years and that will be the thing that takes off. Yeah. Final object? Final object. Okay, let me think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see, I think I wrote down a few possibilities. I might have, what did I do with that piece of paper? Um, I think it was, was it? Well, I think it, it could be another monument, but um, <laughs> let's see, maybe I'll be something smaller. Well, um, Could be a painting actually that I live with, uh, which is by the artist George Condo. And Where do you live? I live in uh, Islington, and it's a it's just a head that's very abstract, made out of blocks of different colored blues and some browns. But he's such a good um, painter that it's in every different type of light. The various planes move around in different ways, and some come out, some recede. So whenever I look at it, it's changed. And, you know, I've lived with this painting for a while now, and it still never ceases to interest me. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, I have other works of art in the house where that magic doesn't happen every day. But this one particular thing does. And I think, you know, I think, say, Bridget Riley is an artist who also has this effect on me. And we're going to have a show of Bridget's here in the autumn. And uh, every time I look at one of Bridget's paintings, I see it one way, and then 10 seconds later, I've seen it a different way. Then the whole forms resolve themselves in another way, and it just doesn't stop changing. It totally, uh, it's fascinating. You know, it's like you're looking at one thing that's supposedly static, but our way our perception works is we're able to keep, uh, it keeps triggering little changes. I like that idea where you can look at something, depending on your mood, it can be different as well. Or you know, it's... Your frame of mind. I think that, um, one, expectations that we have so often color our experience, you know? You think this is going to be really good, 
then you're a little disappointed. You think something's going to be bad, and then you think, no, oh, that wasn't so bad, yeah. right? But I think also our mood from day to day, you know, it's like, uh, I think it's always interesting to do things like read a book a second time or read a movie, see a movie a second time. And you're like, oh, my God, I thought this was terrible before. Now I think it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I think it also gets into this idea that we're, we, we're not so fixed. Yeah. So we're changing. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.